Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. Today we're broadcasting from the studios of the University of Technology, Sydney. We've travelled to Sydney with support from Xinhua Razi, the home of Made in China, a quarterly on Chinese labour, civil society, and rights. Today our guests are Kate Barclay and Michael Fabini from UTS. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks. Imagine you're at a Chinese wedding. The delicacies are being passed around. Suddenly your heart sinks. An entire sea cucumber has been placed in front of you. And is sitting expectantly, waiting to be eaten, resembling nothing more than a moist black fecal treat from the bottom of the sea. We've all been there. We all remember the first time. And today we're bringing you an entire episode on the 1,700 plus species of animal that call themselves sea cucumbers. Because the tale of the lowly sea cucumber encompasses so much, we're devoting an entire show to it. Its fate shows what happens when 1.4 billion people in China change their dining habits, and how that can make and break economies and entire marine environments in Papua New Guinea, Tonga, Fiji, Indonesia, the Philippines, and in fact all over the tropical Pacific. Michael and Kate have written more than you would believe possible on the sea cucumber or bechamel, literally the worm of the sea, as they. They're known in their processed form. Michael, China's seafood market is the largest in the world, and per capita consumption of seafood has increased sevenfold since 1978. Has the consumption of sea cucumber increased in a similar way? Sure. So sea cucumbers have been eaten for many, many centuries in China, but since the reform period, when more and more Chinese basically became richer uh, and started to eat more and more seafood. Uh, sea cucumber, the sea cucumber market uh, expanded rapidly as a part of that. And so uh, you've seen significant increases in sea cucumber consumption uh, and trade since the 1980s and, and 90s especially as well. Do, does anyone other than the Chinese eat sea cucumbers? Uh, there's large Chinese diasporas uh, around the world uh, that uh, significant consumption markets for sea cucumbers as well. But... Uh, I'm not sure about in Japan, Kate, you might know in Japan. Yeah, there's some of it is eaten in Japan, but it's not the tropical sea cucumber that our study was on. They they have homegrown temperate sea cucumber that they eat in Japan and it tends to be eaten sashimi, fresh, rather than dried and reconstituted the way it is more commonly in China. And what about in the Pacific where people actually fish for these sea cucumbers? I mean, they are a protein source. Have any Pacific communities decided to, uh, to try them? Not, the, not in the countries that I'm more familiar with, which are Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands. I've worked a lot in yeah Philippines and the fishers that I spoke to there were always yeah slightly amused or uh, bewildered by the fact that people did uh, eat them and they wouldn't eat them themselves uh, but uh, would trade in them heavily instead. Because, I mean, eating sea cucumbers is kind of a bewildering experience. It's not particularly pleasant. I mean, in China, is it all about conspicuous consumption or why, why do people eat sea cucumbers? So there's a few different reasons, I guess. So one of them is the health effects. It's everything from improving skin quality, uh, cancer, uh, kidney problems, uh, impotence, all sorts of things. And so uh, lots of people will eat it 
generally as part of a, uh, a health uh, regime, but uh, there's also uh, conspicuous consumption as well. And so people will eat them as uh, part of a, a standard banquet course. And so there's a wide range of sea cucumbers. So some of them are the highest quality um, of specific species. Uh, it can be incredibly expensive and only are uh, generally eaten at uh, sort of luxury seafood banquets. But uh, there's a whole range, wide range of other sorts of sea cucumbers that are a bit cheaper and that are eaten by families, for example, that might go out for a restaurant or um, by individuals at home. Is there an industry where the sea cucumber gets processed into handy-to-eat pills and, and consumed that way, much as people eat fish oil and krill oil uh, yeah. these days? Yeah, so there's a wide range of different sorts of products that sea cucumbers get turned into. So I've seen holothurian wine. So holothurian is the scientific name uh, for sea cucumbers and so it gets turned into a, um, alcohol. Uh, Have you tried that? <laughs> no, I haven't tried uh, the holothurian wine. There's also uh, capsules as well you can buy uh, in, in pharmacies and uh, there's soap, soap. I've heard of soap. Yeah, soap yeah. and skin products and things that sea cucumbers are used in. Mm, that's very, very intriguing. It's making me feel a bit queasy. <laughs> I thought of sea cucumber wine. But how, how is this affecting the sea cucumber population, Kate? I mean, are they vulnerable towards overfishing because of or possible extinction? It's certainly um, vulnerable to overfishing and some of the highest um, value varieties are quite easily fished and they're very slow moving. So... Sandfish, for example, are some of the highest value tropical sea cucumbers and they tend to live in seagrass beds, which are in shallow waters and they're very easy for anyone to fish. You don't even need a boat. You don't need to dive for those ones. And so there has been serial overfishing around the world, not just in the Pacific, um, of, of the highest value species and it's happening also with the lower value species because the market just keeps expanding and expanding. Kate, could you tell us maybe a bit about the biology of the sea cucumber and why this makes them a particularly difficult fishery to manage and makes them vulnerable to overfishing? Are they, they are quite a peculiar creature in terms of the way they breed. The eggs and the sperm get fertilised in the water column and then the larvae get taken around by currents for a while and then they drop out of the current and, and onto the floor of the, the ocean and grow from there. So the animals themselves don't move once they're large, but in the larval phase they can get carried around by currents for, for quite a distance. But to actually reproduce, there's uh, this sort of almost a, a, a blooming effect that happens. So sort of the sperm is released, um, I believe, at the time of the full moon. Is, is that correct? It probably is, Luna. There, there need to be enough sea cucumbers uh, in an area and they need to be close enough together. The population needs to be dense enough in that area for fertilisation to occur. So you could overfish to the point that there is still quite a lot of visible sea cucumbers around, but if their concentration isn't dense enough, they won't be able to reproduce. And the, even if you stopped fishing at that point, the, the population will continue to decline and they'll become extinct in that area. And is that already happening? Certainly the picture globally is clear that sea cucumbers are being overfished. So I think there was a study a few years ago that showed that 38% of fisheries Globally, sea cucumber fisheries globally were overexploited, and currently there's seven species of sea cucumber that are considered to be endangered that are traded as well. And in places like Papua New Guinea, what kind of effect is the Chinese demand having? Certainly, uh, you've seen local 
um, cases of overfishing as well. So in the Philippines, as a first example, uh, you've seen it transition from a a uh, high value, uh, low volume uh, fishery where they're targeting uh, very uh, high value, excellent species uh, that earn a lot of money and only relatively low volumes of it. And over the years, it's transitioned into a uh, a very high volume, low value fishery instead. And uh, you've seen them essentially fishing fishing down the, the food chain or the sea cucumber chain, as it were. And uh, in Papua New Guinea, the trade uh, was, was so intense uh, during the 1990s and 2000s that uh, by 2009 uh, it led to a, a moratorium uh, on the trade entirely on exports. Stocks are collapsed. Stocks are collapsed. Yeah. yeah. The fishery was a really important source of cash income for remote communities. So remote communities in Papua New Guinea and many other Pacific Island countries that are away from the main transport routes, it's really difficult for there to be cash earning enterprises from those places. It's expensive to bring anything in or take anything out and you don't have refrigeration or electricity or things like that. So dried seafood products or marine products like shells or shark's fin or bechtemere that are easy to fish and you don't have expensive high-tech inputs that you need to bring from outside and that you can dry and they're shelf-stable and they're small, high-value um, and not heavy or anything like that and they're easy to transport out. They're really suitable for those economies, so they've been a really valuable source of cash income. Um, when The only other sorts of things people can do, like copra farming, is really low-value. The bechtemere was really an important source of income for a long time for people and the closure of the fishery really caused a lot of economic hardship. Would you go so far as to say it's affecting people's nutrition, it's affecting, it's, it's almost leading to starvation in some of these island and remote communities? Yeah, I think it's quite complex the whole way that works in that while the 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 sea cucumber fishery was open and during the months of the year it was open because it wasn't open all year in Papua New Guinea. There was an open season and a closed season. While it was open, people would fish hard to get as much money as they could and perhaps weren't doing some of the food-growing activities that they would have done before the Bechtemere fishery took off in the 90s. And so their gardens got a bit neglected and then they weren't as able to, to grow their own food in that off period. So it sort of changed village economies and made people, in a sense, more cash-dependent which meant that during the closed season or later during the, the, the moratorium that there does seem to have been hunger going on in some of these communities that wouldn't have had that before. And is it the case then that the vast majority or all of those sea cucumber stocks would have been sold to China? Certainly in the early phases in Papua New Guinea, the main destination was Singapore and Singapore was the hub for where exports might be retraded from Singapore. And then later on, certainly in the 2000s, Hong Kong was the main hub. So it's, there are there are strong markets throughout Southeast Asia, and historically, Papua New Guinea um, had connections to those with with other kinds of products, forestry products, and things like that. So in the early years, Southeast Asia was more of an important market, and then later on, um, Hong Kong and mainland China became more important. And is the moratorium working? I mean, how long does it take for sea cucumber stocks to be replenished to the kind of level where they could be fished again? The fishery was reopened on the 1st of April this year in Papua New Guinea. 
the biological information collected by the National Fisheries Authority over the last few years indicated that there was quite good recovery in some areas. Perhaps some other areas had been overfished to the point where they hadn't been able to recover or possibly in some places there was illegal fishing continuing even while the moratorium was on, was in place. But there, there was good indications of recovery and, and that's why the, the fishery was reopened. But that's taken eight years. Yes, it takes a long time for stocks to recover and you can overfish them again very quickly. Tonga was a good example of that. They think they closed their fishery for 10 years or longer than 10 years and within a couple of seasons it was overfished again. So mm. did they close it again then? Yeah. Many of the countries around the Pacific have closed for a period, then reopened, overfished quickly, closed it again. Solomon Islands has has the sea, the the fisheries open closed open closed all the time. Papua New Guinea was able to keep it closed for longer, as was Tonga, but now it remains to be seen whether they can you know, build on all those years of it having been closed to make sure that it, it's more sustainable from now on, or whether they'll go into another bust. And are there other places where the sea cucumbers are at sort of critically low levels? Yeah, all around the tropical developing world <laughs> where there are sea cucumbers. Some of the studies show where the, new, where the sea cucumber markets have opened up over time and basically everywhere that they've been fished for a long period of time and where the governments in those places have have been unable or unwilling to put strong controls on the fishing. I think I probably should admit to some bias against the sea cucumber, having seen it at way too many banquets. But, I mean, what difference does it make to the marine environment if sea cucumbers were overfished? What role do they play in the marine uh, ecosystem? They clean the sediment or the sand that they're on. So they eat eat the dirt <laughs> or the sand and they clean it. So that's, that's one thing. They help keep algae down, which is very important for coral reefs. Um, and I'm I don't know exactly how it works, but I imagine that's important for seagrass beds as well. Um, another thing they do is they make calcium bioavailable to other organisms in reefs. So once they eat the sand and stuff, what they poop out is then that calcium is bioavailable. So that really helps all the other animals. And you, as you may know, you know, calcium in shells, shellfish and in coral and those sorts of things is really important. And, and they really are the most extraordinary animals. I don't know if you've seen footage of them um, making gut forests. So they literally, um, the way they fish is by expelling their entire intestines out into the ocean and then catching stuff, debris as it passes by. And then sucking it back in. When a predator comes along, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's wonderful I saw footage. a worm doing it recently on... YouTube though. <laughs> the whole new YouTube entertainment. No more cat videos, only sea cucumber. <laughs> they're so cute. No, they're gorgeous. I mean, the, their guts are different colours. You have green guts and red guts and it's, it's, it's quite beautiful. I'm going to put this up on our Facebook page. But to, to get back to the question of, of overfishing and, and, and how, you, um, how you address that, um, at the moment the Hong Kong market is the centre of, the, the of the trade and you've seen in other fisheries, um, for example, with shark's fin, there's been campaigns within China to, to stop um, overfishing sharks because of the cruelty of the trade. Um, does the sea cucumber have a champion within China? Not at the moment, no, oh. unless the sea cucumber isn't quite as sexy, shall we say, as uh, sharks or large charismatic animals uh, such as that. And so generally there's very low awareness within China of the sustainability issues involved with the fishery. 
So when we talk to traders, when we talk to uh, consumers, restaurant operators and so on, people are generally not aware of the fact that sea cucumbers are, are widely overfished. I'm just wondering about this whole overfishing thing. I mean, you can't really blame anyone for it, right? It's market demand, there's demand and there's supply. Were, were there moves that could have been done to protect sea cucumber stocks that weren't done? Or is it the case that there's kind of no larger fisheries body that's looking at this globally? Or, you know, what other solutions could there have been to stop this overfishing from happening? It has to be control at the point of the fishery or in Papua New Guinea that the control is exerted at the point of export rather than on the fishery as such. Many countries, for example, Papua New Guinea, the fishery happens out in remote areas where there's very little government presence. The fishers are not licensed, so how can government control them anyway? You can't say you... If a fishery is licensed, for example, fishers have to meet certain criteria to get the licence. But if they're not licensed, what, what control does the government have over them? The whole fishery is informal, in a sense. So there is no government control over, or very little government control over the fishery as such. And that's not just Papua New Guinea. That's the case in many countries around the world. Many of the sorts of things that would normally be done in fisheries management, like collecting catch data and things, would happen from licensed fisheries. In the Pacific, that sort of catch data and things, instead of being on what the fishing vessels catch, is what the exporters accumulate, and they piece together that information from there. The system that the Papua New Guinean government had come up with seemed really pragmatic and um, potentially very effective, but it's such a high prices for fishers with so few other opportunities for earning cash and it just it proved that proved too strong in the past and we'll have we'll have to hope that this time around that the Papua New Guinea government will be able to exert stronger control. So what is it that you'd like to see? I mean, would you like to see some kind of Chinese government campaign saying stop eating sea cucumbers at weddings? Well, that's certainly one uh, indirect form of governance that has had uh, an actual real impact on uh, some of these luxury seafood consumption practices. So, for example, you look at the case of shark fin, um, that's seen a, uh, an apparent significant decline in consumption over the last few years. And obviously the high-profile uh, environmental advertisements by Yao Ming and Jackie Chan and others um, through organisations such as Wild Aid have had a, uh, an effect on that. If you could see how each year up to 70 million sharks are killed to end up in soup, could you still eat it? A third of all shark species are nearly extinct, but we can help save them. Remember... When the buying stops, the killing can too. Other effects, including the corruption crackdown, um, have actually been one of the, the other really significant drivers of uh, reducing consumption of shark fin. And that's also had an impact on the very high end of the sea cucumber market as well. But not on the market as a whole. So you're saying that sea cucumbers aren't just a luxury seafood. They're also consumed more widely in Chinese society. That's right, because sea cucumber consumption is popular among the middle classes more broadly in China. Overall, uh, the market has still been growing. I guess one other thing uh, that we looked at in the report in terms of improving sustainability along the supply chain was the issue of the, the so-called grey trade. So this is where the sea cucumbers 
exported firstly into Hong Kong to avoid the tariff that would otherwise uh, be incurred if they went directly into mainland China. And then from Hong Kong, they're traded through grey channels into to mainland China. And so this is a, a real barrier to improving sustainability along the supply chain simply because it's grey and uh, murky. It, it could be a sea cucumber smuggler. Yes. yes. And is there big money in that? Yes. It's a big, big industry. One of the things from your report is that it seems that sea cucumber from different countries is attracting different prices. And I think I've seen some advertisements, I'm not sure which country it was, I think it was New Zealand, had this wonderful advertisement for a sustainably sourced sea cucumber, a clean, green sea cucumber, if you will. And similarly, North America, I think, is charging a premium for sea cucumbers in the Chinese market. So in a way, is the developed world already getting a premium that the developing world is, is missing out on? Yes. Certainly the Australian, New Zealand's, North American uh, exporters of sea cucumbers, they definitely have the reputation in the Chinese market of being clean and green, as you say, and are preferred as the, the premium sort of sea cucumber. Uh, the problem is, though, because of the issue of traceability or lack of traceability in the Chinese market, it's very hard to tell whether the products that you're buying are actually Australian sea cucumber. So, for example, almost all the entire range of sandfish, which is one type of sea cucumber, sold uh, in, in Hong Kong uh, is marketed as being Australian sea cucumber. In reality, they've likely come from a whole range of, of different locations. So I've saw, for example, very undersized sea cucumbers that are unlikely to have come from Australia because of the sizing regulations in Australian sea cucumber fisheries, but were being marketed as uh, Australian sea cucumbers. And, and what does reality. that go for in the in the Hong Kong market, just to give listeners an idea? How much would you pay for a, a kilo of, of it, sandfish? It can range from tens of dollars uh, per kilo to, to hundreds of dollars per kilo. And so it's very uh, variable in terms of the, the quality of, of individual sea cucumbers. Michael, you, you mentioned lobsters. Is this pattern that you have been describing, this change in Chinese consumption leading to massive overfishing, leading to stock depletion, is that being repeated not just in sea cucumbers but in lobsters and all kinds of other sort of luxury fish? Certainly with other luxury seafoods such as shark fin, as is pretty well known now, and uh, livery food fish, which is the other uh, main fishery that I've worked on, which are groupers, coral trout, uh, Napoleon wrasse, large, beautiful tropical reef fish uh, that are consumed originally more in southern China and now with the expansion of banqueting throughout the country, these fisheries have also become very heavily targeted. I should say, though, as well, though, that overall Chinese per capita consumption is less than, than many other countries. How confident are you that there are going to be any steps taken to improve the situation? Because it seems that at every stage there are barriers towards making the fishing of sea cucumbers more sustainable. Are you optimistic the situation can be changed? I think you have to be optimistic. There's always certain things that uh, can be tried and can be improved on. So, for example, they're talking about the possibility of listing uh, certain species of sea cucumbers under the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Flora and Fauna, so CITES listing. 
traceability systems are a heavy focus of the, the Chinese government at the moment, not necessarily for sustainability uh, purposes, but it will have uh, ideally an indirect uh, benefit for sustainability. We've seen the Papua New Guinean government uh, reopen the fishery, and so it'll be very interesting to see how that unfolds. And maybe to, to wind up, um, a quick straw poll of the room. Uh, how many of you have eaten sea cucumber and how many of you have enjoyed it? Kate? I've eaten it in Japan once, um, sashimi, and it was okay. I probably wouldn't order it again. It was a bit like slimy ear gristle. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Marcia, that's, that's okay. That's, that's okay. I'm not I was gonna... <laughs> I've had it before. I didn't mind it too much. Again, like Kate, it's probably not my ideal dish, but I sort of found it was a little bit like a, a sponge in that it soaked up the flavour of the sauce that it was cooked with and uh, that I didn't notice too much of the, the taste itself. I've had it at weddings. I, I blocked it from my memory. How about you, Graham? <laughs> I've only had it once in Beijing and it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Kate and Michael, thanks for joining us. Mm, thank you. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks to our guests, Kate Barclay and Michael Fabini and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You'll also find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Kate and Michael's work on sea cucumbers and other fisheries. We'll also post some pictures from their fieldwork and, of course, some of my favourite sea cucumber gut forest videos. This episode was recorded at the University of Technology, Sydney, and edited in Hallwood Studios at the University of Melbourne by Gavin Neighbour, with generous support from the good people at Xinhuarazi. Head to their website to find mismatched shards of China, including essays, original artwork, and of course, our podcast. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Safe Doctor. Bye for now.